Welcome back to the OU Nachyami project. Today will be our fourth and final shear on the Nadim, on the prophets of the Second Temple period. Today we will focus on the book of Nehemiah. As usual, our shiurim is sponsored by the Cyprus Foundation with the Tanakh Study Center, www.tanach.org, Tanakh.org. In our previous shiurim, we tried to explain how the situation that's described in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah reflect the new predicament that the Jewish people face, where we no longer have our own sovereignty, there remains a community in the diaspora in Bavel and within the Persian Empire. At the same time, there's a small community that has returned and established a political entity in the land of Israel. Yet in the land of Israel itself, there are many other nationalities. The Jewish people who have returned have the right to rebuild their temple and maybe a little bit of religious autonomy, but definitely not sovereignty. We saw how the prayers of Ezra and also in the beginning of Nehemiah, how their prayers to God reflected that new situation where they turned to God and asked God to intervene in the thoughts and in the actions of these foreign powers. Today we're going to see how Nehemiah himself relates to that new situation. And we also explained how by studying these events, we can help appreciate predicaments that we find throughout Jewish history when the Jewish people, be it in their own land or in other people's lands, have to deal with their local communities, with other nationalities who are all under the umbrella of a superpower and how leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah responded to this predicament and turned to God on the one hand with prayer, yet at the same time took action and took initiative and tried to make a change. So let's see what happens towards the end of chapter 2 when Nehemiah arrives, surveys the walls and sees their state of destruction and wants to do something about it. In Perik Bet Pasek Yitzayin, in chapter 2, verse 17, V'amar lehem, Nehemiah tells the people after surveying the wall, Atem rim nachnuba, do you see this Bad situation that we're in. Asher Yushalayim Chareva. Yushalayim is destroyed. Usharan Yitztubaesh. And the gates of its city are burnt down in fire. He's not talking about the temple here. He's not talking about the destruction of Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about the present situation of the city after the temple has been rebuilt, yet the city is still in shambles. Then he turns to them with a bit of inspiration. Let's go and rebuild the walls of Yushalayim. No longer should we be a disgrace to our neighbors. And I told the people in Yerushalayim about how God has been good to me and helped me come from Persia with the proper papers and permission from King Artakshasta. The people responded, Let's get up and let's build the city. That's the response of the Jewish people in Yerushalayim. Let's see the response of the other nationalities who were led by a person named Sanbalat Achorani. In Pasuk Yotet, in verse 19, They began to mock us and make fun of us and say, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to rebel against the king? In his argument with the local population, he's going to say, Hashem, our God, the God of heaven, He will give us success. We are His servants. We serve our God, the God of all mankind. He will help us start building. And you have no claim or stake in the city of Yerushalayim. Here we are not yet sovereign in the time of Nehemiah. Yet we have papers from the sovereign king, from Artav Shasta. Nehemiah is hoping that with the help of God, the city will be rebuilt and at least remain partially under Jewish control. He doesn't sit back and wait for God to do everything. He doesn't say we'll do everything ourselves 
Instead, we have a beautiful balance between Nehemiah on the one hand praying to God and saying that God will help them, yet on the other hand, making every attempt to inspire the people to take affirmative action to get that job done. Perry Gimel talks about the different groups of people who work on each part of the wall. And then towards the end of chapter 3, we see once again the response of the local population. Listen to what they say in verses 33 and 34 in Pesukim Lamed Gimel and When Sanballat and his cohort saw that we were building on the wall, they got angry, they made fun of the Jews. In Pasuk Lamed Daled, they said to his brethren, these are what the non-Jews are saying to one another about the Jews, What are these miserable Jews doing? Will they restore? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish all this work in one day? Can they bring these piles of stones back to life? And then Nechemi answers and turns to God in prayer in Pasuk Lamed Vav, Listen God, we've become a mockery. Give it back to them. Let them be the disgraced nation and let your nation have some honor. This approach that the success of God's people is a Kiddush Hashem and the mockery by those other nations is a Chilo Hashem. That's something that again has followed us throughout Jewish history, not only in the time of Nehemiah, but ever since that time to our own day. In chapter 4, we get some more examples of the initiatives that Nehemiah takes to make sure that the job gets done. And just for the sake of analogy, I want to compare it to what was happening under the British mandate, where on the one hand there was a foreign power who was in charge in general, yet there were two local populations fighting for control under that foreign empire. Here we see something very similar, where the sovereign power, again, are the Persians. What's happening in the land of Israel at that time is pretty much up for grabs between the Jews who, who have returned, led by Nehemiah, the local population led by Sanballat Horani. And again, we will see how Nehemiah, on the one hand, takes initiative, at the same time, also prays to God. In the beginning of chapter 2, when the local population hears about our early success, in Pasuk Bet, like Shuk, Kulam, Yachdav, all of our enemies plotted together against us. They decided, let's fight and stop the Jews from this building. Even though they had permission, they thought that they can still fight and the local authorities will look the other way. What's Nehemi's response in Pasuk Gimel? We turn to God in prayer. On the one hand, we dive into God. Yet on the second hand, we started our own little national guard to guard the wall and the project of building the wall day and night. When the people see they're about to be attacked, they complain to Nehemiah. Nehemiah responds in Pasachet, He tells their leaders and the people around him, Don't be afraid of them. Remember how great your God is. And you can go and fight them. I want you to fight on behalf of your brethren, your children, your wives and your houses. God on the one hand will help you. You have to turn to Him in prayer. On the other hand, you yourself have to take at least a bit of an initiative and defend your building project and defend your city. In Pasuk in verse 10, From that time on, half of the people working for Nehemiah were working, rebuilding the wall. And half of them were bearing arms, guarding the people who were working. And the famous line, in Pasuk Aleph, in verse 11, Those who were building the wall, how were they working? With one hand, they're working on the wall. And with the other hand, they're holding a weapon. And then in verse 15, we summarize this work and we learn a very important halacha from the next pasuk. 
מאלות השחר עצי את הכוכבים. When was this happening? From אלות השחר, from sunrise, until עצי את הכוכבים, until the stars came out. והיו לנו הלילה משמר והיום מלאכה. The night was for us a watch and the day for work. Chazal learned a very famous halacha from here because the Pasuk in Nechemia says that the day was for work and the evening was for guarding. And then we described that we were working from Alot HaShachar to Tzayt HaKochavim. From here we learned that day is defined as Alot HaShachar and evening begins with Tzayt HaKochavim. And therefore, even though the sun hasn't risen yet, we still consider it day from the time, from the break of dawn, from Alot HaShachar, and we can still consider it at least partially day until Tzayta Kochavim, until the stars come out. In addition to the technical halachic definition that we have here, as far as what defines day and night in regard to Jewish prayer, I think there's something deeper here when Chazal learned laws of prayer based on this Pasuk. It's not just the Pasuk that describes the time of day, but this Pasuk itself stems from a story which relates to the beautiful blend between the need of a person to turn to God, to recognize that his fate is in his hands, and when he's in a difficult predicament, he has to turn to God and pray, Yet at the same time, not to sit back and wait for God to do everything for him, but he himself has to take an initiative. So what Chazal learned, the halachot, the prayer from Alot HaShachar and Tzayt HaKochavim, from this Pasuk, I think it's much more than something technical. In chapter 5, the people come and complain to Nehemiah that their own children are like slaves to the Jewish masters. Nehemiah yells at the Jewish leaders about this situation and tells the rich people to annul the debts of the poor, to lighten this burden of work, and not to treat their fellow Jews as slaves. And here, in addition to prayer, we also see the attempts of Nehemiah to put a focus on social justice as well, not only praying to God, but also recognizing the need that the Jewish society themselves, to be worthy of God's help, have to take care of the poor and the needy at the same time as they're building the wall of the city. What I want to point out especially is what he tells the people in verse 9 in Pasuk What you're doing is not good, the way you're acting with your fellow Jews. You must follow with the fear of God. And that will save us from this disgrace of our enemies. What will save us and enable us to be protected from them and be successful against their attempts to attack us, it's how we treat our fellow Jews. We see here again Nehemiah pointing out that there's not only a need to pray to God, but there's a need to take action within our own society in order that we be worthy of God's help. And Nehemiah himself becomes an example of this behavior. Pasuk Yod in verse 10, Even though people owe them money, Nehemiah and all of his followers abandon any claims to debts that people owe them. And he tells the wealthy people as well, in Pasuk Yod Aleph in verse 11, Give the people back their fields and their vineyards and their olive trees and their homes. Basically, abandon all those loans, give the people a new start. Again, Nehemiah himself sets an example, and the people follow him. Here is yet another example of Nehemiah's greatness in his leadership, his ability not only to inspire the people to take action in building the wall, his also his ability to inspire the community to act in ways of social justice. In the middle of chapter 6, there's one very interesting story about Hassan Balat, the leader of the local population, trying to get the Jews to stop their building project and trying to remain in control, how he threatens Nehemiah what he's going to say to the Persian authorities. He's going to accuse them of rebellion, saying Nehemiah is not simply a governor, Nehemiah plans to become a Jewish king. 
And listen carefully how the biggest threat that could possibly be made to the Jews is accusing them you're planning to usurp authority and establish your own sovereignty. In the middle of Pasuk Vav, he says, You, Nechemia, together with your Jewish people in Yerushalayim, are planning to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. You want to be their king. And then he's going to bring his proof. Listen to what the prophets are saying. The prophets of your time are saying, and calling out to the people in Yerushalayim, there'll be a king in Yehuda. Sampalat says, I'm going to make sure the Persian authorities find out that when they send you to become a governor, that your real intentions is to become king and usurp Persian authority. And your own prophets and rabbis are saying the same idea. The biggest threat that the Jews could be given is that the local population tattletale on them and say you're not just rebuilding your city, you're not just exerting your autonomy, but rather you're trying to achieve sovereignty. Even though this may be true from a prophetic point of view, that the Jews really do want to return to sovereignty, Nehemiah has to deny that right away. Veshlachai Lev Lemorn, in verse 8, he responds as follows, Lo it's not true. You're making that up. We're not trying to usurp Persian authority. We're simply trying to build our own community. As we mentioned in our earlier shiurim, here we see how there may be hopes and dreams of return to sovereignty. Even mentioning the fact that we want to return to sovereignty can be interpreted by the local population as a rebellion against the Persian authority. In chapter 8, we arrive at the highlight of the book of Nehemiah, the famous gathering after the wall was completed, where the leaders gathered together and signed an amanah, a treaty, to be faithful to God. Two small points that we should mention here is that in the beginning of chapter 8, Ezra and Nehemiah come together for this amanah. This is the first time we see Ezra involved during the time period of Nehemiah. Again, we are in the 20th year of our Tachshasta, and Ezra first came 13 years earlier in the 7th year of our Tachshasta. When Ezra gathers them together in chapter 8, there's a lot of halachot that apply to this very day that we learned from these psukim. Let's take a look at the beginning of chapter 8. Everyone gathers to the big open courtyard outside the water gate and they bring the Sefer of Torah Moshe, they bring the Sefer Torah Tezra and listen to the different laws that we learn from here, how Ezra reads the Torah in public to the people. In Pasuk Bet. The people gather to study Torah of the men and the women. Everyone is able to understand. The first day of the seventh month, which is Rosh Hashanah. The whole first half of the day, he taught them the laws of the Torah. In front of the men and the women and the teachers who are teaching the people, helping Ezra explain the laws. There was a big platform, a tower built out of wood that they made special for this. We see from here that when the Torah is read, it's supposed to be read from an elevated area, that when we dive into God, we dive in from a lower place, yet when we read the Torah, we stand on a high place. Having the bima elevated in the middle of the shul, we learn here from these psukim in chapter 8 in Nehemiah. Then in Pasuk in verse 5, before Ezra began to read the Torah, he lifted up the Torah and showed it to all the people. What we would call nowadays Hagba. So the laws of Hagba begin from here as well. Do we do Hagba before we read the Torah, after we read the Torah? 
From here, it seems like the Svarti Minag follows what Ezra was doing as he opened the Torah and showed it to the people before he began to read it. Ben in Pasuk Vav, in verse 6, Vayvarech Ezra et Hashem Elohim HaGadol, before he began to read, Ezra made a blessing. And the idea of Torah, that before we study Torah and teach it, we make a blessing in public. Here we see an example of Ezra himself performing these blessings. When the people hear these laws, they begin to cry. Ezra and Nehemiah tell them, later on in chapter 8, not to cry, Tez Yom Tov, Tez Rosh Hashanah. And the law that we learn, that you're not allowed to fast on Rosh Hashanah, we learn from Pasuk Yud, is a holy day to our God, to our Lord. Therefore, there's a mitzvah to eat and drink and not to be sad. And here we learn that it's forbidden to fast on Rosh Hashanah. The people go home and rejoice. They come back the next day in Pasuk Yud Gimel. On the second day, they gather together and they teach more Torah. And then Nechemia tells them, primarily about the laws of building Sukkot, because the holiday of Sukkot was coming up. They built Sukkot, and everyone gets involved in this mitzvah of building a Sukkah. What do they do in their Sukkot when they celebrate for these seven days? In Pasuk Yitched, From the first to the last day of Sukkot, they read the Sefer Torah. The focus on the holiday of Sukkot here is because Sukkot was used as an educational tool to teach the people Torah. Ezra and Nehemiah began to teach them on Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, they're inspired. But he tells them, it's not just about learning. You have to celebrate. You have to keep Yom Tov. You have to build Sukkot. Then they utilize those seven and eight days of Sukkot for teaching Torah. Finally, in chapter 9, after the Sukkot holiday is over, then it's time to call for a fast and repenting. Then they gather together for all the bad things that they've done. They do tshuva. And in chapter 9, they have the famous Amana, the famous treaty, where the entire nation that had returned to Yerushalayim and rebuilt the walls is now going to take upon themselves to be much more serious about their Judaism. In this Amana, in this treaty, we're going to find the reacceptance of all the laws of the Torah, and they're going to take upon themselves some extra obligations. The whole concept of rabbinic law and takanot and rabbinic ordinances begin here with Ezra and Nehemiah. Before making the treaty, the people hear a very fiery speech where Jewish history is reviewed from the time of coming out of Egypt till their own time period, begins as follows. In middle of Pasuke, the Levim, leading this gathering, tell the people, Kumu Hashem Eloichem, get up and bless God, min olam olam, Hashem etc. These are psukim that we read every day in the Vayvarech David section of Psukim Zimra. First we quote from David HaMelech when he gathers the people when they dedicated all the building materials for the first Beit HaMikdash. That's going to be in Deeper Yamim in chapter 29. And then we're going to jump from the beginning of the first temple period right to the beginning of the second temple period in the speech here given in the book of Nehemiah Perakhet. In Psukim Zimra we combine together these two speeches both at the beginning of new time periods where the people take upon themselves to turn over a new leaf in their approach to God and to be much more sincere in the, in the development of their nation. The speech is very long, but at the very end, we see the exact same thing that we've been talking about all along. At the end of the speech, in verse 34, Pasuk Lamadalad, when we summarize how bad things were in the first temple period, how bad the leadership was, it says as follows, when we had sovereignty, that when we had our own sovereignty, when we had kings and leaders and ministers and priests who were officiating, they didn't listen to your laws. 
that you warned them. Vehein b'machutam, verse 35, they in their kingdom, with their sovereignty, uv'tuvchah harav ha'shenatatalhem, with all the good and the wealth that you gave them, uv'aratzar chavav ha'shmina ha'shenatatalifneim, lo avaducha, v'lo shavu mimalehem ha'reim. Even though you gave them sovereignty, and you gave them prosperity, and you gave them the land, and you gave them all the potential to do great, they didn't serve you properly, and they didn't change the bad ways. Today, in verse 36, they say, now our present situation, in the beginning of the second temple, today we are servants to a foreign power. We're servants in our own land because it's under Persian rule. Our produce is going to kings who you put on top of us because of our sins. We're in this very bad situation because there's a foreign power that's sovereign over us and all of our produce and everything we have in this land doesn't belong to us. It belongs to this foreign power. And we have to pay taxes to them. Nonetheless, chapter 10 begins, Despite this plight that we're in, and despite the fact that we're not sovereign on our own, we're still going to make this treaty with you and listen carefully to the logic of what's happening as the nation is about to take upon themselves this reaffirmation of the covenant in Mount Sinai. We're saying that even though the first temple period, God had given them so much, the people rebelled, we of the second temple period, even though we don't have sovereignty, we're going to thank you and treat you as though we have sovereignty. Because of this, we take upon ourselves to keep all the laws of the Torah, even the laws of the Torah which are a function of sovereignty. For example, the laws of Trumot and Masrot. The laws of tithing are based on the concept that the land belongs to God. He gives the land to us to be sovereign. And we show our belief that the land indeed belongs to God by giving Trumot and Masrot. And God gives that to the Kohanim. And now they're saying, even though we're not sovereign, despite all this, we're going to make this treaty. And in the treaty, they take upon themselves to keep the Torah in verses 30, 31, 32. And then in verse 33, in Pasek Lamed Gimel, in addition to the Machsit HaShekel, we're taking upon ourselves a further obligation. And then in Pasek Lamed Vav, in verse 36, even to bring the Bikurim. And also in Pasek Lamed Chet, that Reshit Aristotenu, Utrumatenu, Upriko Eitz, Tirosh Vitzar, Nabila Kwanima, El Vishchot, Beit Eloheinu, Umasad Matenu, Lalvim, what do we take upon ourselves to do? To bring Bikurim, to bring Trumot to the Kohanim, and Masot to the Levim. In all the cities of our servitude. That even though we're no longer sovereign, and the land really doesn't belong to us, we have to pay taxes to the Persian authorities, nonetheless we're going to treat the land as though we are sovereign, and we're going to give God His due share, and treat the land as though we were sovereign, in giving our Trumot and Masot to God. This is what's called in Chazal, Dushashniya. Dushari Shona of the land, the first sanctification of the land in the time of Yeshua, our obligation to give Trumot to Masrod was because of Kibush. Now in the second temple period, in response to this new predicament where they're no longer sovereign, and Yoraita at the biblical level, there's no obligation to bring the tithes to give Trumot to Masrod. Ezra is making this Halachad Rabbanan, this rabbinic ordinance, that we have to give Trumot to Masrod even though we're not sovereign, wherever we're living in the land of Israel, wherever we have a chazakah on the land, we're now obligated to give the tithes at a rabbinic level because our right obligation, our Torah obligation, no longer applies. This is what we call Dushashniyah from the time of Ezra, which applies for all generations. If you want to look at the details of this, look in the Rambam, in Hilchot Trumot Masrot, in the very opening parak, where he talks about Dushashniyah, 
and gives a much more lengthy explanation of everything we just talked about. There's no doubt that this amana, the signing of this treaty, was one of the key events in the book of Nehemiah. And as we explained in the beginning of our shir, this undoubtedly is one of the transitional events when we move from prophetic Judaism to rabbinic Judaism, from Tkufat HaNavuah to Tkufat HaChokhmah. The book of Nehemiah also describes the effort to bring more people to live inside the walls of Yerushalayim, and the beautiful ceremony where they bring a Korban Todah to dedicate the recently built walls of Yerushalayim. But not everything is perfect afterwards. We find later on in chapter 13, Nehemiah has to fight Chilo Shabbat, the, the desecration of the Sabbath, which is taking place both by the Jewish people living inside the city, as well as peddlers who are coming outside the walls of the cities to sell their goods in the marketplace. Nehemiah has to scare them away and makes a tremendous effort to keep the sanctity of, the, of Shabbat as a central part of the new community that he's established in Yerushalayim. In the end of chapter 13, Nehemiah also complains once again about intermarriage. How many of the children of these foreign women don't even know how to speak Hebrew? He complains about them. There's even some leaders of the Jewish community involved in this intermarriage problem. Nehemiah fights that as well. And he tries to prevent the community, which he's reestablished, from falling once again from the traps of assimilation and corruption. The stories about Nehemiah end abruptly in the 32nd year of Artashasta. And what happens afterwards, we really have no idea. There's a short mention of something that happens two years afterwards in the 34th year of Artachshasta, and that's the last event in the Tanakh. What happens next is a very interesting topic. That's a topic that the work of Seder Olam deals with, and hopefully will be a topic which we will deal with in a future shir. In our next set of shirim, we'll be dealing with the book of Diber Hayamim, beginning with chapter 10.